The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. If you've been around here over the past few weeks as we've been moving through Advent, you know that we've been paying attention to what the church father, St. Augustine, said many years ago when he described the human condition and he said that our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. And what he meant by that was that we were, we've been each made by God and for God. And there is no, nothing short of a restored, intimate relationship with God is going to scratch the itch of our hearts that we each have. And so over these weeks, we've been looking at the true home that Isaiah has been describing in these pages of what God is going to do in the future, what God is going to bring about for Israel and through Israel for the nations. And we've been seeing this as a, as a beautiful kingdom, as a type of place that anyone would want to be, a new order where wars will cease, where um, food will be plentiful, where there is no more sick, no more dying, no more pain. And each week these sermons have been building on each other and pointing us towards Jesus, but this week we arrive. We arrive at a passage that I think is the most powerful and important Old Testament passage about Jesus in the scriptures. And here's why. Isaiah is writing to a troubled nation. This is not Israel's best day. They're under oppression. They're unfaithful to God. Their kings are not living up to the standards that they should be. There's a lot that's that's going wrong for Israel. And Isaiah is coming in on behalf of the Lord. He's speaking a message uh, uh, to the people from God. And he's saying to them, you can make it. You can, you can do it because look what's going to happen. Look at the future. Look who's going to come. One day, a son will be given. One day, a child will be born. And this is what he's going to be like. And this is what he's going to do. And so I know things are hard right now, but look ahead. You can make it. You see, that's what Isaiah is essentially saying. A light has dawned. But friends, that's not how we read this passage. So we don't look ahead. We don't look at it as an encouragement for us. We actually look back. We look, we look at this through the past tense. For to us a child was born. To us a son was given. And this changes everything. This changes how, how, we, how we live our entire lives. Our whole lives are different because this is the past tense reality. It's happened already. You know, so for some of us here, this... Maybe your 30th, your 40th, maybe your 50th Christmas Day service that you remember. I mean, I could continue going up, but then I'm going to get some dirty looks from some people. So I'll stop there. And this is a beautiful thing, but it's also dangerous. The more Christmas services we sit through, the more dangerous it becomes because this story can become ordinary. Christmas Day can become expected. And, and, and Christmas is the furthest thing from ordinary. It is the furthest thing from expected. Christmas is about the unbelievable becoming believable. The impossible becoming possible. 
Christmas is about nothing short than God becoming human. From that child that, Israel, that Isaiah described actually taking upon flesh. Flesh and bones. Living our life. Dealing with our stuff. Feeling our feels. There is absolutely nothing ordinary about this. Because this, if, if this story is true, which I think it is, then as I said earlier, it transforms every single part of our lives. Because a light has dawned in your life that makes everything else marginal. And here's why. Three things this morning, and I'll be short. Three points are, the first is, the light is revealing. Second is, the light is magnificent. And third is, the light is a gift. The light is revealing, the light is magnificent, and the light is a gift. And these three things together show us why, why this is such a transformational message. So first, the light is revealing. One of the first things we notice in the text is that light and darkness are contrasted. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're going into a really, really dark room. Maybe it's an attic, okay? And um, you're going up there to grab something that you know you've put away in storage a while ago. And how do you know what's there? How do you know what's hanging on the walls? How do you know that you're not going to trip over something that you left lying around? Well, years ago, we would have had to bring a flashlight. Now we just have to reach into our pocket, swipe up from the bottom, and then hit the flashlight button. And then all of a sudden, things are revealed, right? The light shines in the darkness, showing what is going on in that room. You can finally see that thing that you left on the ground that you were going to trip over. You can see the box that you were going to grab that you went away in storage. The light reveals the darkness. Why does this matter? There is a light in your life right now, each one of us, that reveals the darkness of our hearts. Each one of us has a light in our lives that reveals the darkness of our hearts. And the Bible talks about this way, 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 way back at the beginning of the story. The darkness descended upon the human heart when we chose to prefer our way to God's way. When Adam and Eve chose to prefer their way over God's way, when they didn't trust that he had their best in mind, they ate the fruit and a darkness descended upon them. And ever since then, that has been the biggest problem in our lives, is that there is a darkness in our hearts that we can't shake. One comedian once put it like this. He said, underneath everything, there's that thing. That forever empty thing. That knowledge that it's all for nothing and you're all alone. Now with that information, we can't just let it sit. We need light. Human beings, we crave light. You know how many young people are scared of the dark? It's a natural thing for us to want to shine something into the darkness. A light shines in. So let me ask you, with the darkness in your life right now, I know you've got darkness. You know you've got darkness. What, what light are you inviting in? What light are you inviting into your life? One of our biggest dangers is letting a light shine in the darkness, be the thing that we look to, to illuminate our hearts, to fill up that empty space that is not Jesus Christ. 
A little while ago, I heard a story of a blogger in New York City who was writing a book. And he was describing his journey of writing this book, and he was talking about how important this book was to him. And he said, I'm the author of a novel, and this book is my life. This book is my life. That is an astounding statement to make. We've got a problem, folks. We've got to be really careful what light shines in our life. What do we let fill the darkness of our hearts? What happens when, you, when somebody finds out, for example, that you aren't as put together as you seem? You know, oftentimes we like to hide behind our sense of goodness and morality. What happens if you get cut from that sport team, sports team that's really important to you? What happens if you don't get into that um, grad school or that PhD program? If we make these things, other than Jesus, the light in our life, the consequences are disastrous. It isn't just disappointing. If we lose that light, if that light goes out, if that book deal for this blogger gets yanked, if, that's, if you get cut from that sports team, if you don't get into that school, if you don't get that job, if your career falls apart, what are you left with? Isaiah is inviting us into a different reality. He says a light has dawned. And not just a light. He calls it the great light. And what we're seeing here is that the, the light of Jesus Christ is, is the good news. And it's good news because it's something that's outside in. It's not something that we have to manufacture on our own. It's a gift of grace that we can receive. It's not something that we have to earn. And therefore, we can't lose it. It is a light that shines into our hearts, that fills us with comfort and joy and hope that can never be lost. It's outside in. What's ruling your life right now? What light has dawned? May it be for you the light of Christ. A, the light reveals the darkness. The second thing is the light is magnificent. And here, let me now make a case for why Jesus Christ changes everything. You know, uh, magnificent is a word uh, that describes somebody who's worthy of following, someone who's, who's, who's morally good, who we would want to um, model our life around. It used to be used of kings that were, that were particularly gifted and good at leading a nation and, and in, enacting justice and doing all of the things that kings were expected to do. And so Isaiah is actually describing this. He's describing the magnificent light. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called— Now, at this point, I just want to stop for a second. In In the Old Testament, in ancient times, when somebody was named, that was, that was a character statement. That wasn't just something that the parents liked or that made it to the top of the list. This was describing not just the person's name, but describing their very character, their very identity, even. And so for Isaiah to make this claim, when he says he will be called, this is describing what this king will be like. And he says he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Now take, for example, the first attribute. He will be called 
a wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. Now, if you've ever been to counseling before, um, and if not, I would recommend it. I think we all need it. If you've been to counseling, you know that when you go to see a counselor, you actually search out somebody who's qualified, right? Somebody who's educated, somebody who has a piece of paper on the wall saying that they can do the thing that they're doing, right? Offer this counseling service to you. And that fills you with a certain confidence. You want, to go to, you want to go to see a good counselor. You don't want to go see a bad counselor. And when you go to a good counselor, and when you pour out your life to them, you walk away from it and you go, oh my goodness, how did they know me like that? How are they able to point to the problems in my life in such precision? How are they able to describe me in such a way almost better than I could describe myself? You see, when you go to a good counselor, you come away from that experience with things to implement, with things to change in your life, and you would do it because you trust them and you know that they're, they're actually wanting to help you. Well, what Isaiah is describing isn't just a good counselor. He's describing a wonderful counselor, which in the, the Hebrew actually means supernatural. Supernatural counselor. This isn't just an ordinary person. This is somebody who you would want to pour your life out to and implement the changes that they say. This is somebody that would be able to not just describe your life, but somebody who knows your life better than you know yourself. Jesus is a supernatural counselor to us. And we can go down the list of these attributes from start to finish, and we can see that this isn't just an ordinary person. This isn't just somebody who's good at what they do. This is, this is the king of the universe that Isaiah is describing. All of these traits are, are telling us that this isn't a person that you can just bring into your life as a side hustle. This person is somebody who you'd want to revolutionize and transform every single part of you. Right? You cannot treat Jesus, in other words, you cannot treat the light of Christ in such a way as you just only follow him halfway or only um, take half of the things that he says. It's, an, it's kind of an all-or-nothing deal. John Stott um, kind of says the same thing when he says, when you come face to face with the light of Christ, you have a few options. You can either hate him, reject him, disbelieve him. You can be terrified of him, and you could worship him. Those are the three options that he gives. And when when I look down at this list of character traits of, of this king, I find it really hard to hate him. I find it hard to look at this person and say, yeah, that's not, something who, that's not somebody who I'd want to rule in this world. That's not somebody who I'd want to give a position of power to. Of course we would. Look at it. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, wars would cease. Right? Justice enacted from now and forever. Of course, this is not somebody that we would hate. So then what? We're left with either being terrified of him or worshiping him. And if you asked Isaiah, you know, if you think back a few chapters earlier, he actually has an experience of God where he is terrified of him. And I think that's a, probably the most natural place that we go when we come in the face, into the face of somebody who is so perfect, who is so worthy, 
And we look at ourselves and we know that we don't add up. It's to be terrified by him. But we can move to worship only when we see that the light is a gift. This is one of the passages in the Bible uh, where the last verse kind of changes everything. Verse 7 in this passage uh, reads like this. It says, The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Well, will accomplish what? What will the zeal of the Lord accomplish? Point, pushing us back up in the passage just a little bit to verse 4. It's, I think it describes this a little bit. He says, For in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the root of their oppressor. Now what Isaiah is talking about is a story in the history of Israel where there was a general named Gideon and he was going to war with an oppressing nation and they were vastly outnumbered. And so what God told Gideon was he said to them, he said, go and surround the enemy camp at night and have each warrior carry with them a torch covered in a clay pot. And when the trumpet calls... Have every warrior smash the pot, revealing the torch, and yell, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. And what happened when they did this was that the, the enemy fled without them even having to lift the sword out of the, the holster, the sheath. The enemy fled. Why? How? What was going on there? Well, God was doing an amazing thing. He was breaking the rod of the oppressor. He was, he was making it abundantly clear that it was not Israel's doing, but it was his. That they couldn't defeat that enemy on their own. That they were stuck under this oppressive rule unless God made it abundantly clear that he was the one to save them. And the same thing is happening here. Let me ask you, what is burdening you? What's keeping you up at night? What are you saying is, is a, what, what are you caught under the oppression of? Whatever it is, God has again shattered it. He's broken it. He's beaten it. How do we know? Isaiah 53 verse 5 but he was punished or pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now back when Midian was or when, when Gideon defeated the Midianites without raising a sword, God has defeated sin and death without us having to be killed. Right? We are the enemy. We are the ones who've turned our backs on God. How does he do this? Well, the sword was not for us. He turned it on himself. He allowed himself to step into our place. He has given us a gift because he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And it was the zeal of the Lord, the eagerness of the Lord, the 
fiery passion of the Lord that accomplished this. He wasn't compelled to send us Jesus. He wasn't under obligation to send us Jesus. It was because he wanted to send us Jesus. You know, have you ever given a gift to somebody that you are just so excited to give because you know it's something that they need, something that they want, something that they're going to love? You've given a gift out of zeal before. You've received a gift from somebody out of zeal before. That's how Jesus comes to us today. It's a gift. A gift that God has given to us because he wants us to have it. When we see this, we can realize that we don't have to be afraid of the light of Christ. We don't have to be terrified of God because of what he has done out of his great love for us. And now what changes in our lives? I said at the beginning of this message that everything changes. Let me just offer this image that describes it. When we give our lives to Jesus, this is what might happen. It's from C.S. Lewis. And I might have shared with you this, you, this with you before, but, but let me um, share this with you again. Imagine yourself as a living house. Just close your eyes. Imagine yourself as a, as a living house. Would you have... You know, two stories or one story? Would it be a split level? Imagine yourself as a living house. And then God comes in and rebuilds that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. Right? He's doing the minor fixes that every house needs. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof. All that jobs that you know that need to be done. But then presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts. And it doesn't seem to make any sense. You don't really know what he's up to. And the explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. And here's what's going on. Lewis says this is what is happening in the the Christian life is that we come into it with all sorts of ideas and expectations about how things are going to go. We have this image of all of the minor renovations that our house needs. And Christ comes into our life, and he begins to, to change things. And it hurts. He begins to say things to us like, your time is not your own. Or your money is not your own. Or your sexuality is not your own. And he begins asking things of us, like complete devotion. Things that are hard. That take sacrifice and dedication and work. And we begin to wonder, what is going on here? Why is God asking me to do this? And suffering comes into our lives. Somebody gets sick. There's a diagnosis. And we think, what is going on here? And then... But what we, what we come to realize is that if we, if we enter into a relationship with God with an idea of the house that we need to be, we are actually telling God what to do. And that's not who he is. Remember, he's a magnificent king. And so we can hold our, our hands out to him, our lives out to him. And when we do that, we can see that we thought we were being made into a decent little cottage, this idea of a house. But God's got something better in mind for us. He intends 
to make us into a great palace because he wants to come and live in us. When the light of Christ comes into our lives, when we give ourselves to him, things will change. And Christ will come in. And he will fill us with a deep sense of his presence and his spirit. Our hearts will no longer be restless because we will have rest in him. He has come to us with zeal. It's zeal. It's eagerness. He wants to be with us. Now, could it be this morning, this Christmas morning, that there are things that you need to hand over in your life to God? That there are rival lights that you need to confess to him? Could it be that you need to make him, recommit yourself to him being the center of your life? The thing that you focus on, the thing that, that you give yourself to. Could it be that you need to let go of control and expectations in your life and allow him to lead you, trusting that he will lead you in the right direction? Could it be that you need to see him as the true king, as the perfect king, as the one who has all the answers even though we don't? He is making you into something more beautiful than you could ever imagine. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray. Father, this Christmas morning, we center ourselves on a story that is the furthest thing from ordinary. So extraordinary, so transformational, and yet we often let it pass us by. We often go unchanged. And we fill our lives with other things, and we, we say sorry for that. And we ask that you would give your spirit to us, that we may center ourselves on you, that we may find and gaze upon the light of Christ more deeply this year than we have ever before, that we may entrust ourselves to you, and that we may find that you give more of yourself to us than we could ever imagine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.